And now let us continue our worship with the first scripture reading from Exodus 1, verses 8 through 14. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians came, became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all tasks that they imposed on them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today is a continuation of what we were just reading. It's from Exodus 1, 15 to 22. The king of Egypt said to the, he- to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephira and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. So it's good to see everybody. I'm really, really glad that we're here. And I'm glad to actually have an audience for the first time in a while, preaching to an empty sanctuary is kind of the worst. So uh, I'm really glad that you all are here so that we can begin this at least together. And so during the fall, we're going to be doing a sermon series called Exodus, Discovering Our Promised Land. And when I originally envisioned this series, I actually thought that I would be coming back from England. Remember, I was supposed to go on a sabbatical? I was going to be coming back from England, and I was going to tell you all about my time abroad. I was going to regale you with tales of my travels, all the places that I went. It was going to be amazing. And I was going to tell you about all the strangers I came across, the pastors, the parishioners. And I was going to tell you about all the wisdom that I gleaned. And then 2020 happened, and all that went away. And so now we are all living under this new normal, are we not? We're living in a world that is 
very uncertain and that is always shifting underneath us. And so I had written this sermon series out actually back in February of uh, this year, and I thought, you know, is it still going to work? Does it make sense to continue to do this when obviously everything that we had planned for is now gone away? And so I went back and I started reading through the book of Exodus, and it became very clear to me that this is exactly what we need to do, because I think out of all the books of the Bible, this is the one that really speaks beautifully to our present circumstances. It really does speak to what we are dealing with right now, and it gives us a lot of wisdom that we can take away from it. This book, uh, many of you probably have, of course, read uh, Exodus at some point in time in your life, but what it really speaks to is kind of how we're connected as individuals, as a church, and as a larger community right here in this area. And so the goal of this sermon series is that we're going to be talking about the bold new direction we need to be taking as Christians right now in this space and time so that we can find our promised land. Now, that term, promised land, I have a feeling that many of you have probably heard it before, but do you know what it means? And some of you may have like a sense of it. But essentially, in the book of Exodus, what happens is the Hebrew people, once they get out of Egypt, and I hope I'm not giving anything away there that they actually get out, right? So... They get out of Egypt, and uh, God says, I'm going to send you to a promised land. It's going to be your new home, and it's going to be there forever. Now, I think as Christians, we all have our spiritual home. It's usually our church, right? So I would assume that for many of you, First Pres is your spiritual home, right? It is, in a sense, your promised land. And so the reason why we're talking about this is because we live in a world right now where The church and Christianity, it's not at the forefront of culture anymore. It's actually behind the culture. And so we need to figure out ways that we can remain relevant so that we actually have a home for the future, so that we know that this place that we all care about so much can stay here and actually really serve the people in this day, in this time, and make a difference to them. And so that's what we're going to be talking about through all of these sermons. Now, to dive into the scripture that we're talking about today, I need to go back and I need to talk to you about the book of Genesis, which TC has been waiting for for a really long time. He actually told me, I can't wait till you talk about Genesis again. So, book of Genesis, we got to go back to the very end of it. And at the end of the book of Genesis, we're talking about the story of Joseph. Now, for those of you who were here seven years ago, I'm sure this is crystal clear. You remember when we went through the whole thing, right? You remember it all. But for those of you who weren't here, I'll recap it for you because, you know, it's it's something that you really need to know about. Joseph, he is the son of a man named Jacob, and he's one of many sons, but he's the most favored son of all of Jacob's sons. And... Joseph, he's this kind of arrogant guy. He's somebody who has dreams about the future, and he likes to kind of shove it in people's faces. And so, as you can imagine, his brothers were not super keen on him. They actually really didn't like him. They resented him. And one day, they decide, you know what? We're going to get rid of this guy. They decide they're going to kill him, but then at the last minute, they change their mind, and they sell him into slavery. So he gets sent down into Egypt, and through a bunch of circuitous events, he ends up going and becoming, from a slave, the second most powerful man in Egypt. Now, during this time, there comes a famine in the land. And Joseph, if you remember, he's storing up grain all this time so that when the famine comes, everybody can survive. And what happens is Joseph's family, they run out of food and they have to come down to see 
Joseph in Egypt. Now, they don't know they're coming to see Joseph because they think he's dead. But when they get there, they not only discover that he's alive, but that he is the second most powerful man in Egypt, which, of course, is bad news for them because, you know, they sold him into slavery, which isn't exactly the nicest thing to do. So they end up worrying, is he going to take revenge on us? And this is probably one of the most beautiful parts of the Bible, is that he treats his family with great kindness, even though they mistreated him. And he says some words at the end of Genesis that lays the foundation for the rest of the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. This is what he says to his brothers. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. Now, the idea behind this scripture is that it's telling us that God is always working to take the negative, malicious, evil things that we do in the world and is trying to turn them into something good. It's trying to transform them into something positive. And this is something that I actually really believe in very strongly. It's one of the reasons why I actually became a Christian, is because I believe this to be true in our lives, that God is always taking those things. And that's what the story of Joseph is really all about, is that he starts as a slave and he moves up to become the second most important man in Egypt in order to save these people who are going to starve to death. And then after all of that's over with, Joseph, he moves his family down to Egypt where they flourish and thrive. You with me so far? All right. I can't really see your faces, so it's hard to to know if you're zoning out or not. All right. So this is where we picked up this morning, where TC started reading. And essentially what we come to is that the king of Egypt, who is also known as what? What's he known as? The Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, he has forgotten... Joseph's relationship with the previous administration. So it's been several generations. And this particular king of Egypt, he is concerned about the Hebrew people because these Hebrews in these intervening generations, they have become very numerous. So he doesn't see them as an asset. He sees them as a threat. And he wonders, are they going to upend our way of life? Could they come together and overtake us? And so he decides he's going to subjugate the Hebrew people. He ends up enslaving them. And he has them work on their building projects. He has them work out in the fields, harvesting their grain and bringing in food for the Egyptian people. Now, what's important to take away from all of this, what I think is so fascinating, is that the more the Hebrew people are oppressed, the more numerous they become. That's something that kind of happens in this early part. And so Pharaoh, he institutes a death protocol on the Hebrew babies that are about to be born. So he ends up telling, he says to the Egyptian midwives, he says to them, look, you all, when you're going to see the Hebrew mothers, here's what I want you to do. The Hebrew women, oh, back one, got too far ahead. There we go. When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. Now, the Egyptian midwives, the story tells us, didn't carry through with this. Because, like, if you were a midwife, would you carry through with that? I don't think so. So, eventually, Pharaoh finds out about this. And he calls them and he's like, hey, why haven't you been carrying through with my wishes? And this is when they say to him, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so Pharaoh ups the ante. He goes and he sends an edict out to all of Egypt 
And he says to them, look, if you're an Egyptian citizen and you come across a Hebrew baby boy, it is your duty as a citizen of Egypt to toss that baby boy into the Nile River. So this is the new normal for the Hebrew people. They're living under a dark cloud of oppression where they cannot live freely and their progeny are at risk of being killed. Now, let me ask you a question. Does this sound anything to you like a little bit like what we're dealing with today? Just a little bit? I mean, even though this sacred story is thousands of years removed from our present day circumstances, I think it's very similar. Now, our oppressor is not some psychotic baby murdering overlord, but our oppressor is the coronavirus pandemic. And what I find to be so fascinating about this scripture when we're talking about the Hebrew people here is that when they are oppressed, they have this ability to thrive, to rise above. And you know, the Hebrews, they are the ancestors of who? The, the Jewish people, right? And the Jews, they've been persecuted for generations. And I've always thought this is interesting. Whenever they have been persecuted, they've always been able to bounce back. They've always been able to come back. And I wondered, is that specific to the Hebrew people? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, no, I don't think it is specific to the Hebrew people. I actually think that it's something that's built deep within our DNA. That when our backs are against the wall, that when everything has kind of turned against us, we have this ability to not only survive, but flourish. And that's what I want to spend some time talking to you about this morning. I want to talk about what is it about human beings that gives us the ability when we are literally backed into a corner to be able to turn the tables in our favor. So you ready to go down that road for a little bit? All right, you with me so far? Uh, So far, so good. Thank you, sir. Okay, so in order to explore this, I want to take you back several millennia to 70,000 B.C., where something very strange happened. So in 70,000 BC, according to the anthropological record, at this time, human beings, homo sapiens, they were all on the continent of Africa. Our population declined to around 5,000 individuals. Now, there are a lot of theories as to why this happened. But one of the most dominant theories, and it's being questioned today, just so you know, but it is the most dominant theory, is that there was a volcanic eruption. So the Toba volcano, located in Sumatra, on the, it's an island of Sumatra in Indonesia, this volcano erupted, and it sent some 650 miles of vaporized rock into the atmosphere. This eruption, it was the largest volcanic eruption ever experienced by human beings. Humans have been on the planet for 100, 200,000 years. This was the largest There was so much ash and dust in the atmosphere that it dimmed the sun for six years. And it ended up changing the entire ecology of the planet. So seasonal rains, they stopped. They weren't moving forward anymore. Uh, It stopped all of the ability for people to go and gather. Remember, at this time, Homo sapiens were hunter-gatherers. So without the seasonal rains, it cuts off streams, the nuts, the berries, all of the things that we, do, that we go after, African game, all of that goes away. And so as a result, the human population, we plummet to around 5,000 individuals. And the question is, it's a question that we've been trying to answer, which is, what is the difference between 
those 5,000 people who survived and everyone else who died in this global catastrophe. Now, you can throw out your guesses as to why they were able to survive. Some people say that it's because they were stronger. Some people say because they were faster. But the theory that I think makes the most sense is that these were the smartest of everyone who was there at that time. Because you see what happens is, as the atmosphere changes, these people, they understood they needed to go to the coastal regions of Africa. That was how they ended up surviving. Everybody else stayed put and they thought, well, maybe our food supply will rebound, which it didn't. And so what these human beings were able to see was that there was a pattern. They didn't know why it was happening. They, couldn't, they didn't understand that it was a volcano. But what they saw was, hey, something's going on, and we have to change. We have to shift. We have to go in a different direction. And if we don't, we're going to die. So this was the first time in human history that the brain, our brain, was actually the greatest survival tool on the planet. And why I find this to be so interesting and why I've told you this whole story is because those 5,000 people are the proverbial Adam and Eves from which we descend. Their genes are the basis of our genes. And we inherited something really remarkable from these people, which is the ability to be able to survive under incredibly harsh circumstances. In fact... The more difficult the circumstances are, the more our brains work to engineer a solution to the problem. So when we find ourselves oppressed, whether it be by the environment or by other people, like what we read today in the scriptures with the Hebrew people, what happens is we figure out a way to rise above. So it seems to be that we are a people that when the world tries to break us, We are able to gather the pieces together, rebuild our lives, and we come out stronger as a result. The only thing we have to do is we have to dig deep down inside to find the strength to go on. Have you ever had to do that in your life? I'm sure many of you have. And so the question that I would ask you is, what does it take to be strong? What does it take to survive under those conditions? And part of it is what's built into our DNA. There's no doubt about that. But that's not the whole equation, because I'm sure you've met many people who, when they are up against tough things, they don't make it. They struggle. And they don't always get through on the other side better than they were. And so to me, I think the other half of that equation is something spiritual. That there's something spiritual that moves us, that drives us. In fact, there's a spirit inside of everyone and everything. There is a spirit that is the foundation of life. It's the glue that blends and binds everything together. And I really believe that that spirit is so important in keeping us afloat. Now, in the Christian religion, we refer to the spirit as the Holy Spirit, right? But it, co- it goes by different names in different religions. I think of this spirit as an energy, as a life force. And when you are connected to that energy, when you are connected to that life force, then it has this ability to bind you together, to actually create this, it has this ability to heal you and make you whole. So I think that the best example of this, in my opinion, is the way to think of how the spirit works in our lives is the Japanese art of kintsugi. Have you ever heard of that before? So up there on your screens, if you can see, this is kintsugi art. 
I had it up in my office, but with everything that's been going on, I totally forgot to bring it down here. But you can see it, right? All right. That is actual gold resin there in the middle of it. And so the way Kintsugi works is the artist, they take a piece of pottery. It's broken. And sometimes it's intentionally broken. Other times it's found pieces. And then what they do is they put it back together with this gold resin. Now, this particular piece, you may recognize this. We gave this as a gift to one of our former interim pastors. Her name is Barb Gorski. And we gave that to her because she was here when I got here. If it hadn't been for her, I honestly don't think I would have made it. She's, she's a remarkable woman. And she took this church, which was really kind of shattered, and she put it back together again. So the way that this all functions and works in the analogy is that I want you to imagine that you are a piece of pottery, right? That's your life. That's how you start. You're a whole piece. Then what happens is, over time, we have things that happen to us, things that chip off certain pieces of that pottery, things that break up. And these are negative things that happen in our lives. So sometimes it can be a failed relationship. Sometimes it can be the death of someone who we love. Sometimes it can be the loss of a job. Sometimes it can be the unfairness and inequality we experience in the world. And sometimes it's things that are out of our control. Sometimes it's things that we feel that we can't overcome, like the pandemic virus, that we're, the coronavirus that we're dealing with right now, this pandemic. And when these things happen to us, we feel beat down. We feel like we're unmoored, like we have nowhere to go. And this is where God's Spirit comes into play. God's Spirit is kind of like that gold resin that is in the Kintsugi art takes those parts, it binds them back together, and it heals those broken parts of us and makes us whole. And the beautiful aspect of Kintsugi, and what I really think God does, is God takes those broken pieces, and they become a beautiful and indispensable part of the new object. So when you think about it, right, if you have a broken piece of pottery, it's not really usable, right? It's this thing that used to be something good, and now it's not. But then they take it, and they make it into something beautiful again. And that's how I see God working in our lives. God takes those negative things and turns them into positives. And I just want to tell you a quick story about something in my life where God has done that for me. So probably one of the biggest pieces of baggage that I've carried with me in my life is this belief that I am not good enough. And this is something that I've felt since I was quite young. It's been a part of me for a long time and has gotten into a lot of different aspects of my life. So it's not feeling that I'm smart enough or attractive enough or strong enough or worthy of love and acceptance. This is something that I felt deep down inside for a really long time. And so because this was so much a part of who I was, it kind of compelled me to want to prove to people that I was good enough and that I was worthy of acceptance. And so I really spent a lot of my time trying to impress people. Like that was like, I was like putting so much energy into that to the point where it actually wore me out. And I would go through this pattern where I would like get enough energy. I'd go out, I'd be like, see how good I am? Don't you love me? Right? That's what I would do. And then I would kind of crash out because it wouldn't work. And so... What happened in all of that is that I got into my early 20s, and that's when I first got into contact with Christianity. It was the first time I'd ever actually seen Christianity before. And this idea was presented to me, and it was really interesting. The idea was that God loves you and accepts you just as you are. You don't have to be anything different than you are right now. 
And I thought that that was a really interesting idea. I, I, I like the idea, but I didn't really know what to do with it because somebody can present with you with an idea, but that doesn't change everything, right? I mean, just because it's an idea, it's like, oh, that's beautiful. Move on with your life. What I realized was that if I was going to experience that idea, I needed to do something different. And this is where faith comes into play. So what is faith? Faith is believing in something that you cannot prove is true. And if you all know, you all have been here for a long time, you listen to me speak, you know that believing in things that cannot be proven are exactly, not, that's not my game, right? Like, that's kind of not how I work. Like, you have to show me. If I'm going to accept it, you have to prove it to me. And of course, when we're talking about things like God, you can't prove that God exists, can you? You can't prove that God doesn't exist either. And if you're going to believe in a God, you also have to accept, in the Christian instance, that God is a God of unconditional love. These were two things that I could not prove. I just had to take on faith. And so I gave myself permission to believe in those things. And once I did that, what I found was I was getting connected to God's spirit, which, of course, is that energy, that life force I talked about earlier. And once I felt connected to God's spirit, that is when I had an experience of that acceptance, that idea that I spoke about earlier, that God accepts me just as I am. So what this process was, was I had to have faith that God existed, that God was a God of unconditional love, and then I felt connected to God's spirit, and then I experienced that acceptance in my life. And that totally changed things for me, because I was no longer, as a result of that, doing those negative things. God took a negative and turned it into a positive for me. So This negative thing that I was doing, which is trying to say, I am worthy of your love and acceptance. I stopped doing that. I stopped spending all my energy on that. And what I did was I turned it around and I used that energy to help other people. And so this was a really important moment in my life. And I tell you this story because I think it's a really important example to us of how faith and belief can help you in really difficult circumstances. So when your back is against the wall, when the odds are stacked against you, if you are able to connect with God's spirit, God is able to heal those broken parts of you. And I can tell you that in my life, again and again and again, every time that I'm dealing with a broken part of myself, if I allow God to heal it, I'm almost always stronger for it. And this is actually true in Kintsugi as well. Kintsugi, when it is performed by a master craftsman, the resulting piece of pottery is almost always stronger and more durable than it was before it was broken. This is really important, and I want to say that again. When it's done by a master craftsman, the resulting piece of pottery is almost always stronger and more durable than before it was broken. And I want you to think about that in terms of you. Is God doing that for you? Is God, like the master craftsman, taking those parts of your life and blending them back together again and making you stronger than you were before? And I really believe that that's how God operates in our lives. That God is taking all those times when our backs are pressed against the wall, when we don't feel like we can move forward, when we're facing those challenges, and is trying to take them and push us back together and make us whole again. And so here's my prayer and hope for you today is that whatever it is that you are dealing with, that you would be able to find the strength to move forward in your life deep down inside. And if you are struggling right now, whether you're watching online or you're right here with us, if you are struggling 
which is totally understandable in this particular circumstance. If you're going through a really hard time, please do not deal with it by yourself. Come and see us. Come see me, Judy, TC. Come and see us and talk to us because if you're having trouble right now, which so many people are and so many people don't want to say, I need the help, come and see us. I'm struggling right now. And I know that so many other people are. We are here for you. We're all in the same boat. We all need to be there for each other. And that's why I really hope and I pray that in the midst of this, that you can really have faith in God's love so that you can experience God's healing in the spirit. And then also, I hope that you will believe what we talked about earlier in Genesis, that God is trying to take all of these negative, horrible things that are going on in the world. It's not just the pandemic. There is a lot of stuff going on right now. That's really bad. And I want to believe that God is taking all those negative things and using them for good. And that ultimately, God will take all of those things in your life that have happened to you, those tough, challenging things, and they will become a beautiful and indispensable part of the person who God intended you to be. Amen.